Please take out your Bibles and turn in them back to Philippians chapter 2, page 982. This morning we will finally finish up this chapter, or we're going to look at, we're going to look at verses 19 through 30. We have had a long stretch of sermons on short passages. I want to give you a break and tackle a longer chunk of Scripture with you this morning. Last week we looked at the nature of the Christian life as one of sacrificial service. This is a bit uncomfortable because we don't particularly like either of those words. We don't like giving up things and we don't like death, both of which are implied by the term sacrifice. We don't like giving away things, and we don't like putting others before ourselves, both of which are implied by the term uh, sacrifice, personal service. Uh, So the Christian life as sacrificial service doesn't sound particularly appealing to our ears. Maybe one of them, okay, we could be all right with maybe one of them, but you put the two of them together, man, no thanks. Our youngest right now, Tessa, is almost 11 months. Uh, She'll be a year in September. Uh, Her favorite thing right now are some nursery rhymes called Super Simple Songs. You got little kids? They're great. They're really good. Check them out. Uh, One of the songs takes two different foods and asks if you like those two different foods. Do you like cookies? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Do you like salads? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. That's literally the first verse. Those are two of my favorite things, cookies and salad. Um, But then the song goes on. Do you like cookie salads? And it says, oh, no, I don't. Yucky, right? You take two of these things and you put them together. Two things that may be okay by themselves, shoved together. I'm gross. Those two things don't go together. No thanks. We're now looking at two things that we don't even like by themselves. And yet, here Paul is shoving them together. Sacrificial service. No, I don't. Right? No, no thank you, Paul. So we need further help here. Scripture, as God's word, is our guide to reality. It's our guide to how life works and how things really are. Our goal is to always become more and more aligned with Scripture as it speaks to us and reveals to us the nature of our good God and the nature of his world. So we need to understand what he has to tell us about the nature of the Christian life as sacrificial Service. Now, is that the only thing that the Christian life is? Is that the entirety of it? Of course not. Now, keep in mind, the Christian life, as we've already seen in chapter 1, verse 21, according to Paul, is Christ. Christ is life. The Christian life, as we saw in the very first verse of the book, chapter 1, verse 1, is union with Christ. It is to be in Christ. It is to abide in Him. It is to rest in Him. Like the whole book of Philippians, remember, revolves around the central Christ song of chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. The whole Christian life is to revolve around Christ. He is our life. He is grace. He is rest. He is redeemer. He is Lord. But an important logical consequence of all that, an outworking of all that, as Paul has told us in chapter 1, verse 27, is a manner of life worthy of the gospel. A logical outworking of all that, as Paul said in chapter 2, verse 12, is now then the call to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling. We work out that which God has worked 
in. As we are one with Christ and dwelt by the Spirit of Christ, we are slowly being made to be more and more like Christ. That's what God is up to in us. He doesn't just save us and then leave us as we are. No, he saves us, which includes sanctifying us. He's conforming us to the image of his son. He's making us like Jesus. He's making us holy. And that process is a delight and a joy. It's utterly dependent upon God's grace. It's utterly dependent upon God working in us. But it is also then a call for us to work and labor and sacrifice and serve because Christ has so wonderfully served and sacrificed for us first. So Paul is here calling us to imitate the righteousness of Christ by resting in the imputed righteousness of Christ. He's saying you have been united to Christ. You have been set apart. You have been saved. You have been made holy. You are a child of God. Now be who you are. Now live out your identity in Christ. Look back at chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Let's see what Paul is doing here. This chapter 2 is so brilliant, uh, what he's doing. I'm just growing in my appreciation of it. Remember the main command we looked at for a while in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2. The call to unity in the church through humility. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. How? Why? He tells us Christ, verses 5 through 11, because this is who Christ is. And this is what Christ has done. The gospel and the grace of God is both the how and the why. Then in verses 12 through 13, he says, therefore, in light of that gospel, live it out. Be sanctified. Be holy. Verse 14, do all of that without complaining so as not to hinder your sanctification and your evangelization. Do all of that so Paul's running and laboring would not be in vain. Do that, verse 17, as the sacrificial offering of your faith. And there's those yucky words again. So Paul, knowing that these are difficult concepts, gives us more. He says, humbly and sacrificially serve one another, 3 and 4, because of who Christ is, 5 through 11. And just in case that's not enough for you, let me give you another example of what that looks like. Let me give you Timothy and Epaphroditus, verses 19 through 30. Paul is a good preacher. He has explained. Now he is illustrating. I know this sacrificial thing sounds weird and unappealing. Let me show you what it looks like. Let me show you how good it is. Hey, look at these two guys. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Last week was the Christian life as sacrificial service explained. This is the Christian life as sacrificial service illustrated. And so we have just two points. We have Timothy and we have Epaphroditus. We have Timothy as the prototypical example of service. And then we have Epaphroditus as the prototypical, prototypical example of of sacrifice. Paul says in chapter 317 coming up, imitate me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Well, that's exactly what we aim to do with these two men this morning. Let's keep our eyes on them and then let's ask God to make us more like Christ as we seek to imitate these two men who were so like Christ. So here's what it looks like. Let me read the passage for you. Philippians chapter 2, 
We're starting in verses 19 through 30. You're going to need that in front of you. We, we really reference the scriptures a lot. My, my words are supposed to come from this word. So follow along and track with me there. Page 982, Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. This is what God has to say to you this morning. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. You would bow with me, and let's pray as we continue. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we believe that it is your word, literally, inspired by you, spoken by you, breathed out by you. Father, we believe that it's living and active, and it's powerful, and it's able to shape and to change, to confront, to rebuke, to comfort, to encourage, to give life. So, Father, we ask that by your spirit that you would unleash your word. Father, forgive me for all my desires to impress with my words. Forgive me for all my um, subtle attempts to make the preaching of your word about me. Father, I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase. I pray that your word would be clear. And I pray that your word would be powerful. And I pray that you would show us Christ. And we ask all of this in his name. Amen. All right, so Philippians is a letter. In a sense, it's a missions update letter. Uh, we support a number of missionaries around the world, and every month uh, I get an email update from most of them. Kind of, this is what's been going on. This is what we've been doing. This is what God has been up to. We support them. We pray for them. They keep us updated. What's sort of what's going on in Philippians as well? Paul is a missionary. Paul is in Rome, in Italy. He has a close connection with this church in Philippi over in Greece that he started uh, about 10 years earlier, which is about 800 miles away. And Paul loves the church in Philippi. And the church in Philippi loves Paul. So he writes this letter to them to update them about what's been going on in his life and then to encourage them and to thank them for their support. He does that in the beginning of the letter all the way up until verse 26. That first part could be summarized with verse 12. I want you to know what has happened to me. So he's updating them. And then starting in chapter 1, verse 27, he shifted his focus to the Philippians. Let me talk to you about me. Okay, verse 27, now let me talk to you about you and how the gospel relates to their situation. And this section goes all the way from chapter 1, verse 27 to chapter 2, verse 18. We just finished this one big section. Now, starting in verse 19, 
He's going back to give them some updates about what he is up to, but these are not just arbitrary details about his travel plans. He is, at the same time, while updating him about his own plans, masterfully illustrating much of what he has just said in the previous section through the commendation of these two men that he is sending them. And he starts with Timothy. And what I want us to see is how much overlap there is between these two sections. We're looking at Timothy as the model example of the Christian life as service. In verse 19, we see that Paul hopes to send Timothy to them soon. That's because Paul himself cannot go yet. Why? Because Paul is in chains. Timothy is free to travel, and we see that in part, Paul wants to send Timothy so that he can hear about how the Philippians are doing. Paul loves the church. He's concerned about the church. He wants updates and encouragements about how they are doing. He's in prison, and his concern is them. He wants to know that they're doing well. He's like John in 3 John verse 4, where John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Paul wants to hear that the Philippians are walking in the truth. And so his plan is to send Timothy on ahead, who will go to them and then come back to Paul with news about how, how they're doing. But why Timothy? Paul had many companions, we see, in the, in the New Testament letters. He's in Rome. There's a church in Rome. Surely he had plenty of people that he could have sent. Well, maybe not. Look at verses 20 and 21. He says, I have nobody like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. That should be kind of that should be starting to ring some bells. Does that does that sound familiar? Look over again at chapter two, verses two through four. Look at what Paul is doing here. Paul is encouraging in, in verse two the Philippians to live a life manner in a manner of life worthy of the gospel. What's that going to look like? What's he particularly concerned about for the Philippians? Verse two. He wants them together. He wants them unified. He wants them one. He wants them to be of the same mind. And then he says, being in full accord. And we looked at that word probably a couple of months ago at this point. Uh, that word of one accord is sum sukos, which literally means with soul, one soul, together in soul. It means to be so united that it's as if the two persons, the two souls, the two minds are one. That's unity. Now, this is somewhat obscured for us, a little in the translation, but if you look back in chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul says, I have no one like him, Paul in the Greek is emphasizing the same idea and using the same word as he used in chapter 2, too. If you've got the King James, he says, for I have no man like-minded. It's a different form of the same word. This one is isosukos, which literally means equal soul. Just another way to say one soul. So intimately united, it's as if two are one. So notice what Paul is doing. He wants the Philippians to be same-souled, to be united, and he tells them that, but then he illustrates that. He points them to the example of Timothy, with whom he himself is one-souled and unified. He says, be united with one another like Timothy is united with me. So there's these explicit connections 
between 2, 2 through 4 and 2, 19 through 24. In the first, Paul explains. Now he illustrates and he's not done. Go back to verse 2 now. He has said, you be united, be like-minded, be same-souled. How? What should we do to pursue such unity? Verses 3 and 4. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but the interests of others. Look back at Timothy in verses 20 and 21. Timothy is genuinely concerned for your welfare. Others are seeking their own interests. Timothy is not seeking his own interests, but he's seeking Christ's interests. Which, good news, by the way, are ultimately your interests. Same thing. Timothy is doing the very thing that Paul has just commanded the Philippians to do. Timothy is the illustration of this other-centered life of service. This is what we talked about last week. We are created in the image of God. We are created to be like Him. And one of the most amazing things we will ever understand about our God, as revealed to us so beautifully and clearly in verses 5 through 11, is that God Himself looks to the interests of others. God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, who is God, did not count that equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not take advantage of his godness. In other words, he did not look to his own interests, but to ours, emptying himself, taking the form of a servant, literally in the Greek, a slave. And that's why the nature of the Christian life is service. And that's why and we think service, we think begrudging, we think uh, just this duty, this, this, this joyless thing. But verses 5 through 11 is why this is good and glad and joyful. See, we've got to rid ourselves of this notion that service is a bad thing, a burden. It's something beneath us. It's not. Quite literally, we're seeing here that it's something above us, and we cannot avoid it. Paul cannot get away from this idea. It's everywhere in his letters, especially in this letter. Look at the very first words of Philippians. Look at how Paul opens. Look at how he introduces himself. Paul and Timothy, servants, literally slaves of Christ. If you, go, if you were to go look at all of Paul's 13, maybe 14 letters, you would see that most of the time, Paul introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So when he breaks that pattern, as he does here, and instead doesn't go with apostle, but goes with servant, we are being alerted to the fact that he is indicating something to us. He is telling us something important that he wants us to pay attention to. Paul says, I am a servant of Christ. That is my identity. Then he says in chapter 2, verse 4, look to the interests of others. In other words, seek the interests of others, meaning serve others. So Philippians, here's what I'm doing. I'm a servant. Here's what you need to do. Serve others. Why? Chapter 2, verse 7, because Christ took the form of a servant to serve others by dying for others. And that's exactly what Christ himself came, uh, told us that he came to do. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's amazing. 
There's no other religion. There's no other worldview. There's no other philosophy. We can say this literally because Jesus says it in that verse where God comes to serve man. Jesus says, I am God, and I have come to serve you by dying for you to save you. There's nothing else like that. And remember that Jesus is giving them this teaching in the midst of the apostles arguing over who's, who's the greatest. We argue about leadership today, thinking it's all about power and authority, because we, like the apostles, associate those things with greatness. Not Jesus. He says that greatness is good. You've just misunderstood what true greatness is. But what is it? Verse 43. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So Paul is telling the Philippians, just like Christ told his apostles, Man, love and serve one another. Not in some laborious, uh, joyful, joyless chore, but because this is what we were made for. This is actually where you will find joy. Because as Christ so clearly says, this is what he himself is like. And this is what he has done for us. This is the very heart of the gospel. God saves man by serving man and serves man by serving up his son, Jesus Christ. And guys, that's why as the wonderful grace of God kind of starts to get a hold of your heart as he graciously shapes and changes by his spirit through his word, we begin to see the goodness and the delight even of this command. And that's why Paul wants to further encourage them and us by holding up to us Timothy. He is genuinely concerned for you, Paul says. He seeks Christ's interests, which means seeking your interests, because grace upon grace, brothers and sisters, Christ is interested in you. That's, that's unbelievable. He came not in some general, I'm just going to come, and I'm going to hope some people then come to me. No, he came specifically for you. If you are in Christ before the foundation of the world, he set his love upon you and said, I am going to come to rescue Matthew. Guys, that's everything. That's, that's life changing. That is soul satisfying. What is man that he is mindful of us? What is man that he would die for us? And Timothy gets it. Timothy has been grasped by this love and it has changed his life. And Paul wants us to see that in Timothy. Guys, we need examples. We need illustrations. Uh, all we're doing constantly is taking in examples and illustrations of the world. And the world is telling you, hey, this is the good life. All the magazines or cover, covers are telling you, hey, this is where life and joy and fulfillment is found. And we see it and we're so tempted to say, oh, yeah, I want that. Because look at how beautiful and happy they are on the front of that magazine. That must be it. And so instead, Paul's saying, no, 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 here's, here's Timothy. Here's God's word. Let me show you a true example of what the good life is. Look at verse 22. And now Paul, and I just notice how Paul talks about these men. It's wonderful. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, here's our word, he has served with me. In the gospel. That's Timothy as servants. But it's Timothy serving with Paul. So 1-1. One, one, that's also Paul as service. 2-7. Because of Christ himself as service. Isn't that neat what he's, what he's doing? 
We're not called to do anything that Paul himself is not doing and that Christ himself has not already done. Paul's not giving us some guilt-laden, threatening, you better go out and serve or else. He's, this is not, hey, listen, if you're visiting today, you're checking this whole thing out, you're not sure about this church thing or this Jesus thing, Paul is not telling us here what you need to do to be saved. Right? Paul is not here speaking to non-Christians and saying, hey, uh, serve people and sacrifice yourself for people so that you can then be saved, so that you can then know the Lord. No, that's not what you do uh, to be saved. You need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That's the only thing. Right? Christ saves us. It's nothing that we do, everything that, uh, that he has done for us. It's all his gracious gift to us. We're dead, and he brings us alive as we repent and believe and turn to him. That's how we are united to him and enter into his kingdom by his grace. So he's not speaking to you today if you are not a believer. What he is doing is giving us a beautiful picture of the fruits of the gospel, uh, of the effects of the results. He's saying this is what a changed life by the gospel, this is what that sort of life looks like. This is what we're doing in the Sermon on the Mount. Henry's teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's giving us this list of the Beatitudes at the beginning, where Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit. He's not saying, hey, if you mourn, and if you're persecuted, and if you do these things, then you will be saved. He's saying, no, this is what life in the kingdom looks like. This is what a soul saved by the grace of God starts to look like. Uh, we don't love so that he will love us. We love because he has first loved us. We don't serve so that he will serve us. We serve because he has first served us. And that's the critical gospel order. God initiates. God acts. God saves. And he shapes he makes us new. He restores us into the image of his son who laid down his life so that we could take up ours. And again, when that grace gets hold of you, I tell you what, it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's, it's liberating and it's life-giving to be set free from the tyranny of self-obsession and self-focus and self-service for God to enter into our bondage and cause us to be born again, to cause us to walk in his statutes and obey his rules, to cause us to release our death grip on sin and self because of the life grip that he now has on us. Guys, it's It's amazing. It's an entirely new way of life. It's an entirely new way of looking at life. It's what it means to be able to say with Paul that to live is Christ. Oh, he's just explaining what that looks like. Here's the life in Christ. It's to be able to say with Paul, man, look ahead to chapter 3, verse 8. Oh, I can't wait to get to chapter 3. Chapter 3 is excellent. Look at what Paul says in verse 8 of chapter 3. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Saying there's nothing better than that. Because that's what we were created for. We were created for him. To know him and to love him, to be known by him and to be loved by him. This is life. John 17, 3. Jesus says this is eternal life. Here's what it is. That they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's life. It's knowing Christ. And I will boast in knowing Christ. We just sang at the cross. 
And because Paul and Timothy know that, they are willing to be poured out joyfully. They are willing to serve joyfully, all in response to the wonderful grace of God. So Paul sends them Timothy, his son, this wonderful example of service. And then Paul hopes to come himself and serve them himself shortly after. Let's continue. Look at verses 25 through 30. Let's look at Epaphroditus. Let's look at Epaphroditus as sacrifice. Now, where are we getting that from? Remember, it's, it's got to come from the text. Well, we saw the sacrificial language last week in verse 17. Paul is the drink offering, which is the joyful accompanying and enhancing offering that is poured out on the Philippians' sacrificial offering of faith. And so we consider the nature of the Christian life as sacrifice. We just read earlier, Romans 12:1. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In light of the gospel, in light of what God has done in Christ to rescue us and redeem us. By the way, 12.1 is the pivot point of the book of Romans. 1 through 11 is just all gospel. It's indicative. It's here's God's amazing grace and here's what he's done for 11 wonderful chapters. Paul lays out the gospel and in verse 12 he says, therefore. Now, in light of all that, here's how we respond. Here's what a life in response uh, to the gospel looks like. We are now his. We've talked a lot about 1 Corinthians 6, 19. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. And so our glad and grateful response to the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf is then to offer ourselves as sacrifice on his behalf in thanks to honor and glorify him. We are, Paul says, living sacrifices, no longer serving self, but serving him, no longer living for self, but living for him. And this is the nature of the Christian life as a glad offering of ourselves in thanks to God. But how is Epaphroditus an illustration to us of that sacrifice? Well, first, who was this guy? Look at verse 25. I could be wrong. Tell me if if I'm missing something. I don't think there's a single verse like this. In the whole Bible. I don't think there's anywhere else in Scripture where there are so many positive things said in such a short space about a single individual. Just notice how effusive uh, this is. Paul gives five descriptors of Epaphroditus. He says, My brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, your messenger, minister to my need. That's a lot of high praise. Remember our context. Peek ahead and look at chapter 4, verse 18. What's been going on? What has Epaphroditus done? Well, in chapter 4, verse 18, Paul writes this. He says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. Stop there. So Epaphroditus is a Philippian. He is from the church in Philippi. He's probably a leader of some sort in the church. And he was the one that was sent to Paul to make the long and dangerous journey to Rome. Back then, when the state imprisoned you, you didn't have a TV and a weight room and a library and they didn't take care of you and feed you. No, they just imprisoned you. That's all they were doing. It was up to you to figure out 
how you're going to be cared for and provided for. You're in prison. That's going to be difficult. So it's the responsibility of others, of family, and of friends to provide for you the things that the state provides now when someone was in prison. So the church in Philippi, 800 miles away, having heard about Paul's suffering and imprisonment, very sacrificially collects and then sends a bunch of money with Epaphroditus to take care of Paul. And so then look at the rest of verse 18 of chapter 4. How does Paul describe these gifts that they sent? He describes them as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Right, so Paul considers their gift, this gift of financial support, as a sacrifice that pleases the Lord. And he considers Epaphroditus himself, the bearer of that gift, as a sacrifice. So look again at verse 25, back in chapter 2. Epaphroditus is Paul's brother, right? Churches, this is, this is a family. This is not a random group of disconnected individuals with which we gather once a week. No, God's creating a, a people. As God redeems us as individuals, he adopts us into his family, his one spiritual family. By the way, so you can't be a child of God, a son or a daughter of God, and not be a part of the family of God. That doesn't make any sense, right? He, he brings us together with our other brothers and sisters in Christ. He brings us into the family. He brings us into a church. So Epaphroditus is first Paul's brother. We see also his fellow worker and soldier. There's some more of that language that we looked at last week. So Epaphroditus, too, is an example of service. He's striving and laboring and fighting with Paul for the sake of the gospel. He's their messenger. He's the one who brought the money to Paul. And he is Paul's minister. That word is the one I want to, I want to look at there. Minister is an interesting word in the Greek. It's the word liturgos. You hear the word there? Liturgos. It's the word liturgy. Liturgy. We get our word from this word. The voice is going. Pray for my voice. Liturgy. Maybe in our circles we don't use that a whole lot. We think liturgy is like for the high church people. It's the Presbyterians or the other people. No, liturgy just means the form or the order that a religious service takes. But literally, the word means a public work. It's a work of the people. That's what the word means. And elsewhere in the New Testament, it frequently refers to priestly service. In Luke 1, 23, Zechariah, remember the father of John? He's working in the temple when the angel comes and reveals himself and speaks uh, to him. It says in Luke 1, 23, when Zechariah's time of service ended in the temple, it's this word liturgy. It is priestly work. It's the same word. What do priests do? Well, they offer sacrifices. Right? They minister to the needs of the people by ministering to the main need of the people. The forgiveness of their sins through the offering up of these substitutionary sacrifices in their place. Remember the Old Testament sacrificial system. Remember how this works. An individual sins, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh-oh, the wages of sin is death. So we all owe death for our sin. But God graciously provided for them a system by which people could be shielded and spared of that death that they justly deserved. So the sin of the individual is then symbolically transferred 
to the head of the innocent animal, and then the animal dies in their place for their sin. And the role of the priest was to minister that whole process. It was to offer up those sacrifices. Now, there are no more priests in this sense, because those sacrifices, we know from Hebrews and from other spots, they were only placeholders. They were types. They were shadows pointing us forward to the true substitutionary sacrifice to come. Jesus Christ, who Hebrews tells us, offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. And by that single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So there are no more animal sacrifices, but don't miss that Paul is picking up here on that language to describe Epaphroditus and what he is doing. He's taking sacrificial language to explain Epaphroditus's service to him. Epaphroditus is a perfect example of a living sacrifice. It's travel. It's so hard to put ourselves in the shoes of these people 2,000 years ago. We're so separated from their experience of life and from culture and how things work. It's just so hard to get into their shoes. You can go 800 miles today in a couple of hours. You jump on an airplane and you're there that afternoon for, for dinner. It wasn't anything like that, obviously, back then. It could take weeks and months. And traveling with a large amount of money, as Epaphroditus is doing, is particularly dangerous. And we don't like difficult and dangerous things. We don't generally uh, willingly offer ourselves and volunteer ourselves to take on other burdens, to put ourselves on the line. But that's what Epaphroditus did. He's willing to sacrifice everything. He's willing to offer up even his life to serve Paul and the gospel. And he almost did. Look at verses 29 and 30. Paul is, again, sending them back to them. All right, it seems probably Epaphroditus is the one carrying this very letter back to the Philippians. And so Paul tells the Philippians how to receive Epaphroditus back. He says, receive him with all joy and honor such men. Why? Verse 30, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. In 27, we see that in the course of this service, Epaphroditus got sick, very sick, near to death. And back then, near to death generally resulted in death. Right? We can get near to death when we have Tabitha and doctors and nurses and all these wonderful uh, things that can bring us back uh, from that point. They didn't have that. If you think our healthcare system is bad, man, go to Rome 2,000 years ago. He's near to the point of death, but he pressed on. He finished the job. He wouldn't stop. He almost gave his life uh, for the sake of the gospel to complete their service. And I, look at the end of how Paul puts that there. It looks almost like he's insulting them. He's not, in verse 30. He's not complaining about their service when he says it was lacking. He just means that they had money for him. That money was 800 miles away. That money doesn't help him very much 800 miles away. Uh, so Epaphroditus is getting it to him and is completing their service and filling up that lack. He's not attacking them. This whole letter is about thanking them for their money. Epaphroditus is the one that completes the mission, and that's sacrifice. And we've got to see that this is fundamental to the nature of the Christian life, as we saw in Romans 12. We're living sacrifices. And praise God, 
that we don't have to offer up uh, literal animal sacrifices. I'm so thankful that I get to study God's word and preach the Bible and meet and talk with you instead of offering up that, that, that role was very dirty and very bloody. But also then praise God that we get to offer up ourselves. And it's a privilege. And we do it willingly. Like Epaphroditus, joyfully, gladly, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, we grow in the realization that he is worth everything. We grow in our understanding with Paul. Again, in chapter 3, verse 7, he says that whatever gain he had, whatever he counted, as most important and most valuable, he now gladly counted as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. And he goes on, for the sake, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count it all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That sacrifice, Paul is willing to lose all things as long as he gains Christ. Because he knows that Christ surpasses all things. And so, rightly understood, whatever we give up in this life, no matter how great, it actually turns out to be no sacrifice at all. Because in the next life, we gain the great thing. The infinitely and eternally great thing. We gain Christ himself our God and our Savior, our lover and our friend, no matter how big the sacrifice may look, faith gives us the eyes to see that it's no sacrifice at all because we gain something indescribably better. And you've probably heard of Jim Elliott, right? You've probably heard of the, the famous uh, missionary. Uh, he has this famous line. He was the missionary uh, to Ecuador. Uh, what was it, the 60s? Was that in the 60s? I don't know when that was. It was a long time ago. Uh, who was killed. Uh, by the very people he was trying to save and bring the gospel to. And his famous um, journal entry, not long before he was killed, he had previously written, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's brilliant and true. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Well, that's what Christian sacrifice is. It's giving up what we cannot even keep to gain what we cannot even lose. It's giving up small things to gain big things. It's giving up temporary things to gain eternal things. Christ himself. And that's why Paul, in the context of great suffering and loss, talking about running and fighting and struggling and pouring out and offering up, in the midst of that context, in prison, he can pen what is now known as the letter of joy and gladness. It's coming out of those circumstances. Because gospel joy and gladness are entirely circumstance independent and entirely Christ dependent. Paul's focus is not set on this life. His gladness is not dependent on the things in this life that so much of our gladness is dependent on. He's, he's got eyes to see. He has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge 
in him. He knows that there are greater and better realities, and he wants us to live our entire lives for those things. He wants us to live and join him in imitating Christ. And so he here gives us Timothy and Epaphroditus as they imitate Paul, as Paul imitates Christ. The Christian life is service and sacrifice, and it is good because Christ is good. And the more we read of him by the work of the Spirit, working through the word, the more we know him and the more we love him, the more we then start to, to long to be with him and to long to be like him. That's how relationships work. By the grace of God, I'm becoming more like my wife, which is a really, really good thing, because I'm terrible and she's great. And so the more that we're together, God uses her as a tool of sanctification in my life, to, as a mirror to say, hey, look, here's all these terrible things. Uh, be like this. And he's very slowly making me more like her, and I get to imitate her as she imitates Christ. And that's not just the marriage relationship. That's church relationships and friendship relationships. As we build these relationships and we see people further along in the faith than us, and we say, man, I want to be like him in this way and like this in this way. And the more we see Jesus... We see our sin and we see his goodness and his purity and his beauty. And like, oh, I, I want that. And he, and he transforms us slowly, sometimes from angry, impatient, prideful servers of self to, to joyful, patient, humble servers of God. He's good and he's making us more like him. And it's, it's wonderful to become more like God. Right? That should just be common sense. It's a really good thing to become more like him because he's God and he's what we were supposed to be like in the beginning. And so we joyfully serve and sacrifice. And as we do so together, we are not just made more and more uh, like Jesus, but again, we are also then united more and more with one another, the people of Jesus, so that we can encourage one another, so that we can bear one another's burdens, so that we can together better evangelize the world. It's a privilege. It's a gift. Don't let all the, the serve and sacrifice language scare you off. It's what you were made for. And it's wonderful. And the proof is here in front of us. Look at Paul and the great joy and love with which he writes. He counts Timothy as a son. And he wants other people to know that. He goes over and above praising Epaphroditus. He builds up with his words. He's my brother. He's my fellow worker. He's ministering to me. Again, don't miss Paul's heart at the end of verse 27. Losing Epaphroditus would have added just sorrow upon sorrow because Paul loves his brother so much. And I want to be like that. I want a heart for others like that. I want my words to praise and to edify and encourage others. So I see Paul, and I say, man, I want to love people like Paul loves people. Look at Timothy, generally concerned for the welfare of others, seeking in service the interests of others and not his own. Look at Epaphroditus, verse 26. Uh, 26. He is sick. He's almost dead. And he's worried about the Philippians. That's amazing. He's willing to give his life so that he could serve and love Paul. I want to be like that. And of course, ultimately, we look at these guys because they're directing us to Jesus. Look to him. 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And the writer of Hebrews says, consider him. He is what it looks like to count others more significant than yourself, to look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, to serve and to sacrifice. He's the standard, so look to him. But much more importantly, he is first the Savior. And so look to him, because he rescues us, and he saves us, and he makes us new. And it's good to be new. Uh, it's good to be alive, and it's good to be like Jesus. This is what that looks like. So if you would, bow with me, and let's close by, by going to the Lord and asking him to do this work now in our hearts. Pray, pray with me. Father, I thank you for your word. I beg you now that you would use your word. Father, I pray that your word would be written on our hearts. I pray that your word would be what captures and grabs our minds. Father, do in us what we cannot do in ourselves. Uh, do for us what I cannot do for us. Father, work in our hearts by your spirit. Father, use these men to show us what the nature of, of a life in Christ looks like. And Father, I pray that you would now give us a desire and a heart for that life because of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. I pray that you would capture us with your amazing grace and your amazing goodness and now build within us internally a desire and a delight to follow Christ and to be more like him, to find our identity in him, and so we could then say with Paul that to live is Christ and that we desire nothing else but to know him and to be known by him. Father, transform us. Transform us as individuals. Sanctify us in your truth, Lord. Your word is truth. So I ask now for your word to do its work on our hearts. Make us like these men. Make us like Paul. But Father, make us like your son, uh, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are good. We thank you that you have promised that your word will not return void. So we cling to that promise now and ask for you to speak. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the Christian life as sacrifice. Why? It's because of this. Right? It's because of what this represents. The, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in our place for the forgiveness of sins. This is what this whole thing is about we are graciously given bread which represents to us the body uh, of Christ given for us we are graciously given the cup representing the blood of Christ poured out for us we are given this ordinance uh, as an opportunity to be regularly reminded of this good news because that's what this is about right this is the gospel in another form we've heard the gospel and God works by his spirit uh, through that word proclaimed to shape us and change us, to minister his grace to us. But now here we are seeing the gospel and God works by his spirit that this word portrayed uh, to us then shapes us and changes us. He ministers his grace to us through his word and through his supper. It's the same gospel. It's the same good news in different 
form. It's the same gospel that is the power of God for salvation, the same gospel that is all about Jesus Christ. And so this too then is an opportunity for us to look to Jesus, right? to fix our minds on Christ, to feed on Christ. This too is an opportunity for us to be nourished and strengthened by the grace of God as we come together to the table. As we physically eat and drink bread and juice, spiritually we eat and we drink uh, Christ by faith. So it's an opportunity to, to meditate on him, to remember, to rejoice, to confess, to be encouraged. This is an opportunity to come to Christ. And this opportunity is made available to all those who have put their faith in their hope in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, who have been baptized in obedience to his commands, who are following him and by the grace of God, however imperfectly, uh, seeking to live for him. Isn't it? If that's not you, or you're not sure, uh, Paul gives us warnings in, in 1 Corinthians 11. This table is not for unbelievers. We have to be very careful about coming to this table unthinkingly and unworthily. If you do not know Christ, or if you're not even sure, if you don't understand what this is about, instead of coming to the table this morning, I'd encourage you to come to Christ, to repent of your sins and to turn to Him. We believe that this is reserved for the church. This is reserved for Christians, for those who have been united to Him by grace through faith. Imperfect Christians fighting, struggling, repenting, but ultimately resting in him. Christian, come to the table and be nourished. If you're confused, or if you're not sure, or if you have questions, I'm going to be in the back. Please come uh, find me at the door. I'll sneak out, and I'd love to answer any questions that you have uh, and talk you through what it is that we're doing here and why. So please feel free to see me um, back there. And remember, come to the middle, come to the front, grab each of the elements. If you would return to your seats um, by the outside, uh, spend some time in prayer with the Lord. Hold on to those. We're going to partake of those corporately together um, at the end. Let me pray, and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you for your grace. Father, this is grace. We thank you for giving to us this table and this supper, this ordinance, this, this sacrament, Father, by which... You preach your gospel to us through the bread and through the cup. Father, nourish us, strengthen us, strengthen us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, we are so weak and we so frequently wrestle with doubt and with discouragement. Father, use this to encourage, to fortify, to strengthen. Father, help us to Meditate on Jesus Christ and by faith be fixed upon him. And I pray that you administer your grace uh, to us through this supper. And we ask and we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.